0: I'm Barbara DeMarca Barrett, and this is Writers on Writing. My guest today novel is novelist Steve Almond. On the show, he talks about how he wrote a handful of novels before he figured it out why multiple point of views worked for him, and why he wanted to write a social novel that spans genres. But before we bring Steve on, if you like what you hear and you find that you benefit from the authors we have been bringing to you for the last 20 some years, please consider visiting patreon.com backwards slash writers on writing and contributing whatever you can. $5 a month, the cost of a coffee will help us out to make it possible for us to continue bringing great authors and tips to you. As a patron, there are perks, writing prompts, tips, and extras. Now for our show featuring author Steve Almond. Steve is the author of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction, including his New York Times bestsellers Candy Freak and Against Football. His recent books include William Stoner and the Battle for the Inner Life, which is about reading and writing and the struggle to pay attention to our lives, and Bad Stories, a literary investigation of the 2016 election. For four years, Steve hosted the New York Times Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed. His short stories have been anthologized widely in the Best American Short Stories, the Pushcart Prize, Best American Erotica, and Best American Mysteries series. His new book is a novel called All the Secrets of the World, published by Zando. Here's Steve. So happy to talk with you about All the Secrets of the World, um, published by Zando. Tell me about the book. I mean, I know you've been a a nonfiction writer for many years. You have a number of books out. Um, And this is is the first novel?
1: Technically, I guess technically, all the Secrets of the World is my second novel, but it's the first novel, feels like the first novel to me because the other novel that I wrote was a collaboration with Juliana Baggett called Which Brings Me to You. And that was really more like a series of short stories because it was written in the form of letters back and forth. So I'd been you know, carrying around for a long time the feeling of like, when am I going to write a novel? Why can't I write a novel? I tried over and over again. I failed over and over again. And I now, now understand much more clearly why those books were failures, um, but I didn't at the time. I really did not at the time. And uh, I carried around a lot of like, you're a failed novelist. That was my primary, the way I identified myself, which I don't think is a good way to think about <laughs> things. But it was clear to me that that was like a big deal. And I wasn't going to be a real capital W writer until I wrote a novel. And I don't think that's really In fact, what allowed me to write the novel, I think, Barbara, honestly, was at a certain point, I just admitted to myself in my late 40s, hey, maybe you'll never write a novel. And that's okay. You write lots of other kinds of books. You write story collections and essays and different kinds of um, writing. And it's all great and meaningful. And so what if you can't write a novel? It's okay. Some people you know, just aren't made to write certain kinds of books. But interestingly, having surrendered that narcissistic talisman and said, okay, like stop pushing it. I think it opened up a certain kind of creative, imaginative space for me. And into that space, the muse walked Lorena Sines, the the heroine of this book. And once I met her and understood what made her tick, her incredible desire to be seen by the world and regarded and understood and even desired, and also the kind of danger that she unwittingly is inviting into her life and her family's life, Um, that was the engine of this thing. And it just really, it didn't write itself. I wrote it, but I had the feeling that I was being pulled through the book rather than the feeling I had with the other failed novels, which was pushing the characters, hoping they bumped into plot and self-revelation and conflict and all that stuff.
0: Hmm. How did Lorena come about?
1: I don't know. Sometimes the I, I believe more and more that the muse exists outside of you, not inside of you. And even though Lorena arises from like the deepest precincts of me somehow, I don't want to interrogate too fully or try to understand too fully how she emerged from my artistic subconscious. I just know, I mean, that I've always been drawn to characters who are are tremendously ambitious and intelligent, but are um, unrecognized and they need to fight hard to be seen. And at the same time, I think part of the reason this book worked is that it's very dangerous as somebody whose family is undocumented for her to be seen. I know what was going on in the political world when I was writing the book, which was the vilification of immigrants, which is an old story but became increasingly hysterical and sadistic over the last few years. And I also know that my own particular history, having worked in El Paso straight out of college and never having thought about the border, really witnessing up front what immigration is, which is people seeking opportunity, seeking the American dream, and our immigration system, which is essentially criminalizing that desire to live the American dream. I know that's been inside me for a long time and and a lot of moral distress about it. But I don't know exactly where Lorena came from. I just know that once she appeared, it was my job to kind of follow her, track her, be curious about what she was going to get into next and whether she was going to um, take the actions that get her into danger and her family into danger and whether she was going to be able to get them out of it. And I was really chasing her at that point.
0: I was really impressed in um, the different voices. It's a multiple point of view novel, and um, the characters all have such different voices. you know, there's the stalwarts, there's Jenny, there's her dad, there's her mom, right. the brother um talk about Talk about that family as well. like where did they come from?
1: Well, I think that growing up. I, w- I grew up, I'm the same age as Lorena. I grew up in the California of 1981, the dawn of the Reagan revolution. And I was both um, part of a family uh, that, that had a certain kind of ambition, um, but I also lived in an area of Palo Alto, California in, in sort of the, not the, kind of the dumpy part of town. Palo Alto now is known as Silicon Valley in this big Mecca of this mega wealth tech world. But back then it was kind of a sleepy college town and there were no computers. There was no tech boom. And so the, the, the house I lived in, the little Eichler, we were surrounded by people in downtown Palo Alto and Los Altos Hills who had tremendous wealth. And I remember riding my bike across town to play soccer or whatever and just passing these giant mansions with these giant green lawns shimmering with money. And you know, it's like, oh, my God, it's very kind of Gatsby. And I think there was a certain amount of fascination because I played soccer with kids and I went to school and was in honors classes with kids who had driveways that were a mile long up in Los Altos Hills. And I would go to their parties and feel the sense of like, my God, there is a world of extraordinary wealth and ease and assurance. Um, It's not that, I mean, my family was solidly middle-class and maybe even more than that, but my parents were kind of hippies so they lived beneath their economic means. And our house was, I don't know, 900 square feet, something like that, with three boys rattling around, uh, sharing a room until I was about 13. It wasn't like we were doing fine. We were doing great. But um, there was a lot of very wealthy people around. And I think the stalwarts um, kind of arise from that, that there's a certain kind of ease and privilege that exists uh, in America. And that because of the public school systems, um, that in Palo Alto anyway, there was a a huge range of uh, kind of the stories that, that, that different kids were born into and they were pressed up against one another they naturally self-segregate but part of what I realized in the book early on is hey there's the science project and this well-meaning teacher wants to pair this intelligent but really uh, you know uh, Lorena who's incredibly smart has a brilliant scientific mind but she's living you know, with a single mom who's undocumented, really struggling economically with you know, Jenny Stallworth, who's kind of not that motivated, comes from a family with a lot of money and doesn't take her intellect that seriously. Um, and that there was a tremendous amount of, I mean, the moment Lorena walks into their house, because this is 1981 and they don't just do their science project by text and Google doc, you <laughs> had to go to people's houses. And when I went to those people's houses as a teenager, it was kind of dazzling. And the moment Lorena walked into that mansion, that mint green mansion, each of the Stalworth parents for their own particular reasons, some of them well-meaning, some of them quite unwholesome, take a kind of extra interest, shower their attentions upon Lorena. And of course, she's just the kind of kid who wants that attention, even if it makes her visible in ways that are gonna be really dangerous to her.
0: Mm. Was Was the novel multiple point of view novel from the start?
1: It's a great question. I, as I wrote further into the book, I knew that I I really enjoyed spending time with Lorena and that I wanted to be in her head and heart and body in these crucial moments early on. But I also, the more I wrote about each character, the more curious I became about their inner lives and why they make the decisions they do. And the more eager I was, or determined is a better word, the more determined I was, not to allow any of them to get flattened out into either a victim or a villain. So as I'm going into the Stalwarts, I don't just want to flatten Rosemary out into this uh, kind of, um, you know, uh, sort of entitled uh, rich white lady who's going to be a sa- savior to Lorena. I think she's more complicated in, in the nature of her misbegotten motives come from somewhere. She wasn't just born trying to insert herself into somebody else's life and behaving in this condescending way or whatever. Same thing even with somebody like Nancy Reagan. You know, when I, she's a a minor but important character in the book. And I spent four decades flattening her out into this kind of caricature. She was this modern Marie Antoinette with her fancy china patterns and her Gucci dresses and her silly astrology. But as I thought more deeply about her and became more curious about why she behaves in the way she does, I realized the moment I'm entering her life, her husband, who she adores and believes is destined to lead the country, is shot and almost killed. And she adopts astrology or doubles down on her belief in astrology because she wants to keep him safe. And honestly, Barbara, every one of us does that. We will adopt whatever belief system we believe will keep the people we love safe. And so as I moved into each of the characters lives and they intersected with Lorena's lives, I did not just want to write stock characters. I didn't want Pedro Guerrero, the police officer who investigates the case that Lorena gets sucked into. I didn't want him just to be a standard issue, you know, muttering cop. I wanted to understand why does he behave as he does? Who is he? What events made him the person he is? And honestly, this is really the job of the social novelist. This is what Dickens was up to, and Victor Hugo, uh, and in the American tradition, De Pasos and Steinbeck and Ralph Ellison and Zora Neale Hurston. They were trying to understand not just one character or uh, you know, and one character's perspective, but what happens when people with differing levels of power collide with one another. And to do that, I think honestly. And to not flatten people out, you have to, at least I needed to go into all of their points of view and understand their backstory. I really just became curious about who they were, because I don't think anybody sees themselves as the villain of in, in the story. We all construct a story in which the actions we're taking are completely justified and necessary.
0: Mm. Well, you know, okay, so let's let's go back a little bit because you said once you gave up the idea of writing a novel or, or publishing a novel that it freed you to write that novel. And can you, can you even kind of pinpoint kind of what happened next in terms of um, the writing and, and where you started with this book?
1: I think intuitively I understood from the beginning that Lorena was going to walk into the Stalworth house because she was paired with this wealthy classmate. And that from the beginning, the parents, each of the parents was going to take an interest in her. And she was going to do what I did as a kid, which was to imagine what would it be like if I was a part of this family? What would it be like to move through the world with such ease and assurance and a greater sense of my own destiny? And that that was really the engine that I... I I was lucky enough to have the muse walk into my imagination, a character whose internal conflict I understood immediately, that she's desperate to be visible, and that it's very dangerous for her to become visible. And that was really the engine of it. And the rest of it, I don't want to make it sound too simple, but the rest of it was me following a clear chain of consequence, which is something that had never occurred to me previously. It's really, for me, the key to plot. Not just this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. That's what all my other novels were full of a bunch of set pieces, this and then this and then this. But this happens, and therefore this next thing has to happen. And because of that, this next thing happens. And for me, I really once I latched into that chain of consequence, then it was really a matter I knew what had to happen next. Because when if Lorena does this in reaction to Marcus Stalworth that's gonna set off a tra- chain reaction. And the next thing is gonna be that this happens. And because of that, the next thing. So in a sense, uh, I don't wanna say I lucked out but I understood that it was this chain of consequence that was really the engine of the story.
0: Mm. Talk about the setting because um, it, it goes from Sacramento to the desert and I love I love uh, fiction that takes place in the desert. It's hard to find. And um, you're down at the Salton Sea. This, you know, Marcus Stallworth later in the book is sort of, you know, lost in there. Um,
1: Yeah. It's his walkabout. I mean, I was interested, I think, in writing about the California that is underrepresented, not the dream factory of LA or the, you know, the sort of new dream factory of Silicon Valley or the old dream factory of San Francisco and gold and the prospectors. You know, California's always been this mythic place and it's a place, it's like the promised land of the United States. But of course there's a whole other California um, that is the Central Valley where the, the, the crops are grown and somebody has to grow them. And there's the, the desert, most of the state is desert and there are smaller uh, cities Less prominent flashy cities like Sacramento that are full of interesting neighborhoods and co- class conflicts and ethnic tensions that are mostly untalked about because in America you don't talk about such things. You just tell this happy story about being a mansion on the hill. That was what Reagan was always saying we're a mansion on the hill. And I think people want to believe that, but they don't want to ask the question well, who lives in the mansion? Okay, great. Who cleans the mansion? all right, well, who gets arrested if they trespass upon the mansion? And those were the questions I was interested in. I think Sacramento was an important setting because I'm interested in revisiting the dawn of the Reagan era and getting underneath that gauzy myth that he was so optimistically weaving for the country. And I also think that the desert itself is full of life and full of great resilience. And it's hard to survive there. You have to be a survivor. I love the moment where Lorena, you know, goes out into the desert and she thinks it's empty. And then Marcus Stallworth turns on this iridescent ultraviolet lamp and suddenly a thousand scorpions start fluorescing around her. And you realize, wow, this place of tremendous privation that seems barren and empty is actually full of life. It's just hidden from view. It's not visible until it suddenly becomes visible. And so that for me was tremendously exciting. I agree with you that the desert is, is a place of great extremes and unbelievable beauty because um, it's not so full of the distractions. There's another moment where Marcus Stallworth takes Lorena out into the desert and he says, You know, all that stuff back there, all the pavement and the products, that's all, that's all fake. That's all just made up. This is where real life happens. And I kind of agree with them. I mean, I think he's a complicated and very troubling figure, but I agree with what he's saying, that there's tremendous life in the natural world and in places where human beings uh, are too lazy to look more, cl- more carefully. There's not just tremendous life, but unbelievable resilience.
0: Mm. You know, I love, I love the scorpions. It reminded me of years ago, I went on a, I was writing about Anza Borrego, I think, and I went on a scorpion hunt with this guy named Borrego Bob. I don't know if he's still around down there, but we did that. We went way out into the desert and he got out his black light and we saw the scorpions. And so I loved um, seeing them again in your book. And I, I was curious um, if you remember how they actually came into it, because oh, yeah. it's not just in passing. I mean, they're throughout.
1: No, mm-hmm. scorpions are hugely important to the book. And I can tell you precisely how they happen. I mean, I think in general, what happens when you, when you start writing, especially a novel, because it's a long story, it has to have a really strong engine. Um, it's like a rocket taking off. And the force of the story is like the sucking in its wake all of this stuff out of the artistic subconscious all these memories and events and hauntings that are kind of unresolved that that the writer's been thinking about for a long time and so for me one of those things is living in el paso as a young reporter and certainly seeing the border but also being taken out writing a feature story on these two scorpiologists who are visiting town they took me out into the desert and they did exactly what Marcus Stalworth does. They, they said, you know, close your eyes and they turned on their giant ultraviolet light and the scorpions came alight uh, on this ocean of sand out outside El Paso in the desert. And I never forgot that it was such a powerful memory to me and such a powerful example of how, how limited human vision is, how much we miss in the natural world. And, um, you know, that, that stuck around for 25, 30 years. And it, it, I knew that I was gonna, I, I think the moment I, st- I, I realized that Marcus was a scorpionologist, I knew that's where it was headed, out into the desert to be among the animals.
0: Mm. Did, you, did you plot at all?
1: I did plot, but it was very intuitive. It was very, it was very much the chain of consequence. And I'll say that in a way, the scorpions were really crucial because when I thought about scorpions and then did a little bit of research, I realized this is an animal that we view as terribly alien and frightening and dangerous and primitive and scary, but they're actually incredibly human. Um, you know, there's a description when, when Marcus takes Lorraine out into the desert, he, he really tells her about scorpions and they're animals who view themselves to be prey. They're very frightened, shy animals, nocturnal animals even though we view them as predatory. And I think that really describes the human arrangement that we think of ourselves as the victims and as the vulnerable party, even as we're being destructive and sometimes sadistic. I mean, that's what's going on in America all the time now. And I think of other ways in which scorpions are very similar to human beings. They become visible and incredibly beautifully visible, but they uh, are trying to remain invisible. And they're also incredibly sensitive creatures. Marcus points out those hairs along their legs and how they can register the movement of a single grain of sand 10 yards away. And Barbara, to me, a description of an animal that exquisitely sensitive is a description of me interacting with my family around the dinner table. If one of my kids or my partner does anything, the tone of their voice, the certain cast of their eyes, I know exactly what they mean. I'm so hypersensitive to their moods, to how they're feeling. To whether they're angry or disappointed in me. And I know they're super attuned to me as well. So as I thought about scorpions, I realized, wow, Marcus Stallworth is a scorpion. He views himself as the victim, but he's actually predatory. And he's, he's sort of um, ambivalent. He's trapped between sort of retreating and running away and hiding and suddenly attacking or suddenly being aggressive. And that's why he's such a an exciting character to Lorena, but also such a a mysterious and dangerous one.
0: Hmm. I wrote down a line from from the novel, Lorena's grandmother would say, the scorpion hunts while the rest of us dream. That's why he knows all the secrets of the world. And there's your title. Um, Did you know that was going to be the title early on?
1: Well, when that came out of me, and I will admit that I just made that up, Nobody's grandmother said it, or maybe they did, <laughs> but I just made it up. And when, that, when a line like that comes to you um, and a phrase like that, all the secrets of the world, it has an extra echo because the other secret to the plot here for me was everybody was keeping secrets. And there's two different kinds of secrets they're keeping. There's secrets they're keeping from the world and then there's secrets they're keeping from themselves. And both of them are dangerous and both of them are exploding into view with each scene. So for me, that was kind of the cheat code of the book. The reason that the plot felt so easy for me to write was that I knew that it was all about what secrets each character was keeping and how they were going to suddenly burst into view. Um, I, I will say that like I'm a big fan of, of titles and I, and I think they almost always arise from some line in the prose, and they convey a certain energy that, uh, that the style of the piece has. And I definitely worry that all the secrets of the world would sound very grandiose and maybe overwrought. But in a way, I would rather have a title that's big and ambitious like that, because it forces me as the writer to try to write up to that. It's almost like a promise I'm making to the reader.
0: Hmm. Will you read from the book?
1: Yeah, I will. In fact, why don't I read, um, why don't I read that scene where uh, Marcus takes Lorena out into the desert?
0: That's great. Just to set it up. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: You know, Lorena has been sort of absorbed weirdly into the Stalworth family, and she's 14 years old, eighth grader, um, and the surprise that she's invited on this camping trip, and the surprise that's been engineered by, by, um, jenny Stalworth's mom rosemary is that you know marcus is going to take the take them out not just the girls but jenny's older brother glenn um who's kind of a soccer playing jerk that's kind of like the me character in the book i was a soccer playing jerk when i was (laughs) when i was a kid um they're gonna you know marcus is going to take them out on this little adventure and the moment that but you need to put snake chaps on in the desert because snakes come out at night and Marcus puts chaps on, snake chaps, both on Jenny and Lorena, and Jenny freaks out, and she says, no way, I'm not going anywhere where you're required to wear snake chaps, but remember, Lorena's really brave, so she's not only okay with the snake chaps, she's kind of excited by the prospect of walking into a place that is unknown and dangerous, and so she goes with Marcus and Glenn out into the desert. Mr. Stalworth led them, Into the darkness, he lugged an oversized lantern which he set down on a small rise. Close your eyes and keep them shut until I say, Do it, Glenn murmured. Remember, Glenn's the older brother. (laughs) Okay, Mr. Stalwart said, Open. An iridescent purple light gleamed out in all directions. Lorena's eyes scrolled an ocean of sand upon which now lay scattered scores of tiny glow in the dark toys, the sort kids on TV pulled from cereal boxes. Then the toys began to move. Lorena gasped. These were living creatures, many-legged and scrabbling like tiny lobsters. Welcome to Scorpionville, Glenn said. Lorena glanced at the sand around her feet. A scorpion the length of a hairpin labored under the weight of its stinger, which hung like a fang jewel over the armored segments of its body. Don't be frightened, Mr. Stallworth said. He was suddenly right beside her. I'm not. Lorena replied. What do you think? There. Lorena cast about for the right word, stunned to find the truth in such a simple one. They're beautiful. She could feel Mr. Stalworth inspecting her face, trying to figure out if she really meant it. He took off his glasses and began furiously polishing the lenses with the hem of his shirt. For a queer moment, Lorena imagined grabbing his glasses and tossing them away. We're going to take any home? Glenn asked. Mr. Stallworth pulled a small flashlight from his pocket and swept the purple beam across the sand. We might as well see who's hunting tonight. To Lorena's astonishment, he knelt down and guided a scorpion onto his palm. The animal was the size of a matchbox. Its pinchers pawed the air. Shouldn't you have gloves, Lorena said? You just come at them from behind, Glenn said. They can't sting backwards. They're not aggressive animals, Mr. Stalworth explained. They just want to be left alone. Mr. Stalworth returned his focus to the animal. You see these little hairs along their legs, he said. This is how they hunt, by touch, by vibration. They can register the movement of a single grain of sand from 10 yards away. Why do they shine, Lorena said. Nobody knows. Fluorescence must convey some kind of evolutionary advantage, but it's still their little secret. Glenn asked his father to find a scorpion he could pick up. Mr. Stalworth scanned the ground with his magic light. These are your best bet, sand scorpions. Aren't they poisonous, Lorena said. This species isn't too bad. She watched Mr. Stalworth gently prod the scorpion onto Glenn's hand. The creature scampered along his knuckles. It looked glum, menacing, painfully shy. Are you gonna pick one up, Glenn asked Lorena. I'm sure she's had enough excitement for one night, Mr. Stalworth said, I'm not scared. The words came out louder than Lorena intended. More softly, she added, I'd like to hold one. Mr. Stallworth switched on the lantern. He stared at her face again, half in wonder, and picked up another one, bluish under the light, a gentle species, he said. It sting, no worse than a wasp. She reached out, and Mr. Stallworth uncurled her fingers. The earth was trembling beneath her. Then she realized that it was her and not the earth. You don't have to do this, Mr. Stalworth said. Oh, I'm sorry. You don't have to do this, Mr. Stalworth said. I know. Do you trust me? She met his gaze and nodded, and Mr. Stalworth lowered the animal onto her. No way, Glenn said. The creature clung to the knob of her wrist like a charm. Slowly, tentatively, it began to move toward her hand, the legs rising and falling like jointed oars. Lorena's pulse lurched. She closed her eyes to keep from flinching, tiny feet tickled her palm. She felt a dampness beneath her clothes, the dizziness of what was gonna happen next. When she could stand it no longer, she opened her eyes. The scorpion was perched on her thumb, perfectly still, its stinger hoisted like a tiny scythe. He appears to like you, Mr. Stalworth said.
0: Mm, thank you so much. Um, as you were reading and as I was reading the book, I was wondering about, you know, Lorena, she has such a crush on him and he is attracted to her. And I was curious if there was any pushback from, you know, your agent, from editors, from readers um, about writing about sexual predators and and their involvement.
1: Yeah. Um- I mean, I think readers, I think there are some readers who are just always going to be disturbed. And I think, uh, I mean, I think every, every reader who reads about a a, a scenario in which an adult with power and responsibility abuses that adult by being sexual uh, toward a child who can have sexual feelings and desires, but is still a child and doesn't understand um, how dangerous they can be and how much it means. Um, I think anybody is going to be queasy and troubled by that, but it is the province of literature to write about how people are, not how we wish them to be. And in this case, um, Marcus Stallworth, partly because he was abused as a child, sexually and sexually exploited, um, has a darkness within him and an attraction to, and a compulsion to be predatory towards uh, young girls. And that's certainly nothing that I uh, relished writing about, but sometimes in the writing, characters announce who they are and what they're gonna do. And it takes even the writer by surprise. And that was the case in this case, that, that there's a moment early in the book where Marcus reaches across. Uh, he's driven Lorena home from the Starworth house and the door to his Jeep is hard to open. So he reaches across. And I don't know if you remember this moment, Barbara, but the hairs along his arm mm-hmm. uh, brush up against the, a little bit of exposed skin on Lorena's belly. And both of them feel something that uh, I was not expecting at all. Like that scene and that moment came out of nowhere. And the moment it happened, I realized that it, it had to happen, that that was each of the characters responding honestly in a moment even though it's morally terribly upsetting and it's going to end up being disastrous for everybody involved, it happens. And your job as an author isn't for your superego to take over and say, you can't do that. You mustn't do that. It's naughty. It's upsetting. It's to say, what's true? We don't go to fiction to make friends. We go to fiction to figure out who's really alive and the ways in which they're alive. And uh, the this, this same thing applies really to the audacity of me, a white dude, middle-aged dude, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class person of tremendous privilege, writing about characters who have much less power, who are disenfranchised, writing across gender, ethnicity, legal status—you um, uh, know, virtually every different barrier you could write across—there is a good and necessary argument to be made that the people best equipped to tell stories. Uh, are those who have lived them, who have lived experience. And I agree with that. There are all kinds of amazing books that handle um, like what it's what immigration is really about. All of Luis Yorea's novels, Children of the Land, for instance, or I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, uh, these are all wonderful, amazing books that are about that experience. But I have to work with the with the characters who come into my imagination or I don't have to, but that's when I think I'm doing the most important work when I'm writing the story that I feel called to write. And I certainly thought afterwards and have thought deeply as I was revising the book about making sure that I was honoring all of the characters and being as careful and sensitive to all of them as I could be, especially the ones who are disenfranchised. But I also feel like it is the job of the novelist especially to awaken and enlarge your moral imagination by imagining your way into the lives of other people who have walked a different path and who were born into a different story. And if you don't do that sort of work, imaginative moral work, then you're stuck being a representative only of your own experience. And that goes for white dudes like me or somebody who's young and Latinx or an African-American character or an immigrant character, uh, or uh, uh, I should say an, an immigrant writer we cannot reduce artists to just being representatives of their own experience. One of, the, one of your jobs is to try to compel the reader to imagine their way into particular lives. And for me, as somebody who'd spent a long time writing about my own life, every time I'm doing that, Barbara, even though like you know, I have to write the books that come to me, but every time I'm writing about my own experience, I'm really centering whiteness and maleness and upper middle class, creative anxiety stuff at the center of my stories. And this time around, I felt like, you know what? You know who's the most interesting character to me? You know who I really am the most curious about? You know who I want the the reader to have to confront and live inside? Lorena. And later her mom, Graciela, and her older brother, Tony, those are the characters that I want the reader haunted by and thinking about and not able to turn away from. And I think that's part of our responsibility as artists is not just to, um, you know, write about our own experience, but to write about the experiences of characters whose lives we haven't led so that we're more sympathetic to people who are born into a different story.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I love that, that you did that and that you wrote it- wrote the book the way you did. And I worry about readers in terms of, you know, we live in, we currently seem to live in this cancel culture. I worry about writers worrying and adjusting accordingly and not, not writing the stories they need to write.
1: Well, that's up to individual artists. And one thing that I clearly feel is You, you. I mean, like I'm thinking about what Toni Morrison said when they asked her about, you know, can can William Styron write The Confessions of Nat Turner? And she was like, of course, that's his job, basically. I'm misquoting her, but she essentially said, of course, anybody, any writer who's working with their imagination can write about anything. That's the job description. But they damn well better get it right. Mm -hmm. And especially if they're writing from a position of extraordinary privilege, as I am, writing about people who are really living with a much more slender margin for error who the American system can grind up or imprison or railroad into jail or whatever it is, the vulnerabilities those characters are living with. The, the, the author of privilege like me has to make sure I get it right and um, be very careful in making sure that I'm not uh, flattening out any of the characters or exploiting their circumstances to try to quote unquote, make great art and, and sort of get attention. And the reader ultimately gets to decide that. The writer can be, um, the writer's job is to love and regard all their characters. That doesn't mean approve of them, but to understand why they do the things they do and how they operate within larger systems of power. For a social novelist anyway, this is a social novel. That's my job. It isn't just to dramatize what happens with Lorena and Tony and the Star Wars and the rest of them. It's to understand and present to the reader the larger systems of power in which individuals operate. And um, you know I would rather in this moment where there's a lot of power that's being abused and turned against vulnerable populations, it feels to me like that's what we should be working on as novelists. We should be forcing the reader or, I'm sorry, forcing is the wrong word. We should be <laughs> impelling the reader trying to coax the reader into thinking about these larger systems of power and how they can, how easily they lead well-meaning people to behave in destructive and abusive ways.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you talk about it being a social novel. It's also, I mean, it is a literary novel. It's also a crime novel. And I wondered, you know, how much you thought about genre or where this would go on the shelf.
1: I didn't think about that at all. And um, I think, you know, that, that's a, that's a decision for for the people who uh, like Zando, uh, you know, took a chance on this book and they made it their first title of, of the entirely new company, Molly Stern and Emily Bell, my, my editor Emily and Molly Stern who runs Zando. They immediately understood what I was up to. And I think they were courageous in a way that I know other publishers might have shied away from because the book deals with a lot of disturbing uh, situations and events. And because the book also is, you know, a social novel, which is a tougher sell. And because the book is hard to categorize, it shape shifts. It begins as the exploration of these two young girls and then it moves into a police procedural and then it moves into a desert walkabout and, and then it really tries to combine or synthesize all those different elements. And it's a shape shifter, like The Scorpion, it's a shape shifter of a novel. And those are really tough to market. You can't just sum it up. I don't know if you've tried to describe the book to somebody, but I have a hard time. I sort of say, well, it's a social thriller or it's a <laughs> mashup of Jane Eyre and The Wire or Breaking Bad. Or, you know, I try to sort of find all this shorthand, but the truth is that it's a book that's written in different modes. That's why it's divided into five separate books. And that kind of scope and ambition um, makes it a tougher sell. You can't just, you know, there's, it doesn't have an elevator pitch, or at least to me, it doesn't have a comfortable elevator pitch. But ultimately, I like books. And I remember Emily saying to me, um, I said, you know, do you have concerns about the fact that it, it goes from being one kind of book to another, police procedural, and to this and to this? And she said, no, I love that. It's a shapeshifter. And I mm-hmm. thought, wow, that's the right editor for me. She's mm-hmm. not worried about where it's going to go on the shelf. She's worrying about, where it's going to go in the reader's mind and imagination and heart.
0: Did it begin with a query letter?
1: Uh, your
0: connection with
1: Zando. It began with Jenny Ferrari Adler, my agent. Um, you know, I, for years i would worked without an agent. And I finally had this big kind of social thriller on my hands and I wanted to get an agent to, you know, send it out to a lot of folks. I worked for years on the book and, um, uh, she, she, she immediately got it, and got what it was about, sent it to a whole bunch of places. And Zando really just got it and made a preemptive offer because they were like, yes, this is it. This is the one we want to put into the world. And it was so obvious and intuitive to them. We did send a query letter, obviously, out to all of the folks. And part of what I emphasized in the query letter, because I, you know, Jenny and I wrote it together, is this is a social novel this is the reason that it changes point of view. This is the reason that there's a big cast of characters. Um, this is the reason that that the author is choosing to inhabit so many different kinds of people across all these societal differences and ethnic differences, economic differences, and so forth. I wanted them, I wanted editors to understand what the book's ambitions were. It, it's, and ultimately, I think, I mean, my hope anyway is that the, that readers aren't thinking about all this as they're reading the book; they're just caught up in the story. But it is a story that take that goes big and broad and sprawls. I think epics kind of pretentious. I don't think I could say I wrote an epic, but it's written on a big scale, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I hope that the reader is grounded enough in the characters' experiences and their hearts. That you're just following along. You're not thinking, um, "Oh, he just switched modes," or "Oh, he's now writing about predation," or "Oh, he's writing from the point of view of a teenage, uh, you know, Honduran American." Hopefully, if I'm doing my job right, you're just in the story.
0: So, so back to the query, because you know the show is also about the business of writing, um, and you had mentioned, you know, how difficult it is. It was to you know say what it is, like the elevator pitch doesn't exactly work, but query letters, it seems that agents want um, comps in query letters. And I wondered if you had comps in your query to Jenny.
1: Yeah, you know um one agent read it and said something very interesting, which I really respected her for saying. She said, five years ago, I could have sold this book at auction for you know six figures, whatever, whatever. it's agent speak. So I didn't necessarily take it at face value, but I took it as like what she was saying is, hey, it's going to be a tougher sell because of the question really of representation. Um, but w- she said, you know, the book I thought of was Col McCann's uh, Let the Great World Spin. And I thought, mm. great great admirer of that book. And there is a kaleidoscopic quality to this where you're, you get to leap into the minds and experiences of so many different characters who are intersecting through this kind of, um, you know, it's, not, it, it's sort of an anti-crime novel really in the end, but um, it sort of centers, ultimately ends up being uh, about a, a, an alleged crime. And uh, I think we might've mentioned, Jenny might've added a couple of more comps. And I know that's part of the business, but really when you read a great book, I I really don't think to myself, oh, this reminds me of that. Mm -hmm. I really think deeply like, holy cow, this captured me. This is what I've been thinking about. I I can't put it down. And at the same time, I'm worried that I'm getting to the end of it. I'm just reading for a book group, Margaret Duras, The Lover, Mm-hmm. And that slender book, I've read it a few times. I never think, oh, this reminds me of thus and such, because <laughs> it's so inimitable. It's so deeply itself, and it's like nothing else. And this to me is the great irony of the way that publishing works. Because books are increasingly difficult to turn into commodities, editors and agents are constantly looking for comps. But what's really incredible is when you find a book that isn't like anything you've ever read before. To me, that's the sweet spot. That's what you're going for. So to try to sort of stuff it into a, well, this is kind of like that book is so, to me anyway, so clearly a business decision that's not really an artistic reaction to the book.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, how did you keep track of everything? Because there's so many moving parts to this story and do you, do you have, you know, uh, three by five cards all over your office, <laughs> do you have, like newspaper or butcher paper around your wall where you're drawing diagrams and writing down yeah. characters names and how they intersect and all that?
1: Yeah, well, I hate to disappoint you, Barbara, I don't. I am not a, a deeply organized person. Let me say that more accurately. I'm a deeply disorganized person. And what I had was that chain of consequence. I had Lorena, who was the engine of this thing, who was the heart of it and everything that she does, the kind of courage that she shows and what it triggers. And I just was chasing it out. And I knew ultimately that I wanted Lorena to head out into the desert. I knew that she was gonna head out there with Pedro Guerrero, the police officer, um, who ultimately, who who initially, makes a really destructive decision that, that causes Lorena and her family a great deal of harm, but that ultimately Lorena was going to enlist him in her cause and tr- to try to save her family. And I knew they were gonna wind up in the desert together. Uh, I, I, that's about all I knew. I didn't know the exact ending. I didn't know exactly what was gonna to happen to Lorena and her family members. But as I wrote more deeply, into the situation and followed that chain of consequence, it kind of resolved to me. It became obvious that it was gonna have to be like this and have to be like that. And each time Lorena kind of runs into a new character or her older brother, Tony, or Graciela, her mom, encounter a new character, um, I I gradually came to understand what the trajectory was going to be, what business they had in in the science lives. So I know that doesn't sound very satisfying, but I, I really didn't, I had a sense of where it was going, but I needed to save enough that was mysterious to me, that was unknown to me, that I would have some room to improvise and for the kind of, um, for that part of my imagination to be open for business. I couldn't have plotted it you know, so carefully because I needed the room to figure out logically what would happen if Lorena did X, then Y was the result.
0: So how did you come to the chain of consequence knowing that you needed that in order to tell the story?
1: Well, I think it was, I I did know the alleged crime that's at the center of this was something that happened when I was Lorena's age back in Palo Alto, California. Word went around My school, that the father of a kid who'd actually been a friend of mine had disappeared in the desert, and that his Jeep had been found with blood all over his clothes, disheveled, his wallet, uh, you know, flung around somewhere near the vehicle, and that he had been presumed to have been murdered, robbed, and murdered. That, um, I remember that so vividly from when I was 13 or 14, it was such a dramatic and and distressing thing to happen. I remember going to my friend's house and seeing his mother, who I'd always had a crush on, she was quite beautiful, and her hair had turned snow white. These are things, as you know, Barbara, that show up in the book. Remember I was saying Mm -hmm. that, that the force of the story pulls, sucks all this stuff out of your artistic unconscious and it's been lurking around in your artistic unconscious because it has business with you. It's been waiting for its moment on stage. And it's sort of summoned by the force of the story. So I knew that was gonna be the central event towards which Lorena's entrance into the Stalworth house was gonna culminate. And I pretty quickly had a sense of how Lorena's family was gonna get sucked into uh, this crime and and wind up being um, accused. And ultimately, I don't wanna give away too much of the plot, but I had a clear sense that that event was gonna be the fulcrum on which the plot pivots and the book changes into kind of a police procedural and then a pursuit into the desert and so forth. But um, I didn't plan it a lot. I really let the muse come to me.
0: Did you have to do research into um, police procedurals, like how it would go?
1: I did some research, but I was an investigative reporter for uh, four years in Miami. And I wrote a lot about the way that big systems, especially the law enforcement and the criminal justice system operate. I wrote a story about a a guy who was called, the media brandished, uh, created this nickname, the Bird Road Rapist, somebody who sexually assaulted a number of women back in the late 70s uh, in and around Bird Road, south of Miami. And the story I wrote was a reinvestigation of the arrest and ultimate conviction of a a guy named Louis Diaz who was who was you know like the criminal justice system deemed him the bird road rapist he was behind bars when I wrote about him and when I looked at the case history Barbara it was so obvious on about 17 different levels that there was no way he could have committed one of these crimes let alone all of them but the system the media went into a moral panic And there was tremendous pressure to find somebody who would be the perpetrator. And they found this vulnerable Cuban American immigrant. And you know, through circumstantial evidence at best, he was ultimately convicted. I'm happy to say that Luis Diaz was ultimately exonerated because DNA evidence was, you know, emerged, the the technology for DNA evidence and it became clear that he didn't commit the crimes and he was released from prison after 26 years mm. but i was well aware from that story and other stories about police corruption and so forth that when there is a moral panic america's always looking for a scapegoat that's why fox news and the right in this country is constantly creating these moral panics so that we can then so that they can then put the finger towards and point it towards immigrants or Muslim Americans, or poor Americans, or African American Americans, you know, th- to try to deflect from um, their own responsibility and the destructiveness of their own impulses. It just happens over and over again. So as a reporter, I had already gotten a pretty good beat on that cycle and how it operated. And you can see how I kind of translate it into the book.
0: Yeah, I and mean, I was I was gonna say that that um, early on we we see how uh, the police manipulate the public through the press.
1: which, right. You know. I mean. Well, I would say actually, what happens is the press is trying to get eyeballs and trying to win attention. Even back in '81, it's become even more uh, kind of accelerated and frantic these days. But the way they do that, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. So they come up with the Death Valley killer and, you know, all the gory evidence and all the, you know, bloodstained, dust and such. And once that happens, then there's tremendous pressure on the police, especially the local police, to solve the case. And once that happens, then you have police officers and their superiors and prosecutors making decisions where they don't realize that they're cutting corners, ignoring evidence, ultimately railroading somebody. Mm.
0: We have a few minutes left, and I wanted to ask you about the first page and the first chapter and how important that was in getting it right um, or not. I don't know what sort of focus you put on the beginning of the book, but can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I put a lot because for me, the openings, one of the classes I teach is about the openings of books. And I try to point out that You should be able to look at the first line and first paragraph of a book, and it should, in certain ways, foretell what is going to happen. And uh, you know, so the first line of this book is: "By the time she was thirteen years old, Lorena Science had learned how to make herself invisible." It's that that, in a way, is laying the predicate for the entire book because she's desperate to become visible, and in that desperation to be visible, she lets herself and her family in for a lot of danger. Um, it was also really important to me to introduce a narrator who could sort of pull back from the characters a bit and give us a a wider sweep of of the era that I was writing about. So at the end of that first section, because the book is sort of divided into books that are like 100 pages long or 80 pages long, but also these little sort of chunks, vignettes, you know, you have a a line that, that where we found out about the science fair and these two girls being paired together unexpectedly. So that's part of the plot is set up. And then the narrator backs up and says, you know, it was the winter of 1981. Ronald Reagan had just been sworn in as president on the outskirts of Sacramento where the girls lived, a portrait of the former governor still hung in the classrooms at Sutter Junior High. He gazed down upon them with his eternal smile, like an indulgent father, confident that no manner of evil would ever intrude upon their prosperous, uh, upon the prosperous kingdom they shared well like the moment you read that at least the moment i read a paragraph like that i know that all hell is going to break loose and i know that reagan and the idea of reagan and the dawn of the reagan revolution that that's an important part of the book and i think early on readers are ravenous for story they want to know where they are what's going on they want to be grounded in time and place and they want to be grounded in story they want to know that it's headed somewhere dark and dangerous and the sooner I know that, uh, as a reader, the happier I am, the more I can relax. I feel like I'm in good hands. Somebody's inviting me into the car and they know that the car has a big engine and that it's headed toward the darkest part of the forest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, and, and I think as, as readers, the reader is able to relax in that moment as well. And, and, and both the, the writer says, okay, I know and I'm confident that I have a good story to tell. And I, I'm gonna make that clear to the reader and that allows me to relax and follow that chain of consequence and be curious about what happens next and what happens next. And it allows the reader to stop, sort of ravenously searching for the story, because the narrator has been generous enough to promise them that they know where they're going and it's somewhere dangerous.
0: Is that is that a crossover from writing nonfiction? You know, kind of laying down, kind of the, what what's going, what we're going to be reading, where it's going. Well, I
1: think that's a realization as a teacher and manuscript consultant, I read so many stories where eventually it's going to be a really interesting story, but initially the writer is really hiding the story and trying to leap into scene, get us into these sort of vivid moments, but without us knowing where we are and getting oriented. And I'm a big believer that the narrator needs to be keeping the reader oriented and giving us lots of information up front So we know whose life we're entering and at what point in their life and what's at stake for them. And you cannot know, really, you cannot feel what a character feels until you know what they know. So I realized this just from reading so many manuscripts where we leap into action without sort of the, the the cart of action is put before the horse of narration. So I knew I wanted a, a narrator who could set out who Lorena is, where she is in her life, what's dangerous for her, what's exciting for her, and the opportunity that suddenly is put before her that she's going to get to walk into the Stalworth mansion. Once I'm able to do that, I can relax and really use the language to convey the story rather than pushing the language around because I'm not sure what the story is or I'm not sure the story is interesting enough.
0: I have to ask you about the name Stalworth. Where did that come from?
1: I think it sounded like kind of a rich white name, and I also <laughs> like the idea that it has these two interesting uh, a verb and a noun in it that are both really provocative and relevant to the characters. Stall something that's you know, <laughs> stopped. It, it isn't, the engine isn't running anymore; it's in stasis. And also worth um, worth is a big deal to Rosemary and, and to Jenny, and you know their their wealth and their worth and is part of their status. And I think, you know, again, I don't, I didn't think too deeply about it. It just sort of came to me, but it has a certain resonance when I think about it since morally, um, you know, I believe that, that, that what, what Rosemary Stallworth is struggling with maybe all of them in some way is that they're not making progress. They don't have hope. They are sort of reacting in, in a way to um, the absence of real optimism and hope in their lives. Their worth is kind of stalled. I will say that somebody pointed out to me, because I wasn't aware of this. I chose Lorena Signs, the last name Signs, because I remember a photographer when I worked in El Paso whose name was Grace Signs, and I always liked her, and I just sort of plucked it. But the subconscious doesn't make mistakes, and somebody pointed this out to me. They said, "Oh, Signs, um, like uh, like science, like Lorena, who's so interested in science." And then somebody else said. Oh, signs like signs and wonders, like because you're doing this thing where you're comparing belief systems and religion versus science. And I, I said to both those people, like, oh yeah, uh huh, oh yes, of course I meant that, but I didn't mean either one. It was one of those things where, where you choose unconsciously, you settle on a name, and it's because you, in your unconscious there's some set of connotations that make sense, but you don't. Like your conscious brain doesn't figure that out. I think when things are working well when you're writing, it's your unconscious that's driving the bus.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. because um, I, you know, a lot of the names throughout the book, I I would stop. I wonder what he, where he came up with that one and right. why this one. You know, it's interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, in some cases, it's really quite clear, like there's a, a minor character whose last name is Luger. Uh, you know, and as we're living through, uh, you know, the 12,000th mass shooting in this country, that's you know, completely drunk on violence and, and guns. Um, you know, Luger is a guy who's, uh, you know, gu- sort of entitled and violent and carries around a gun. So that name is, you know, kind of on the nose. But generally speaking, the ones that are really resonant are where there's something about it. It feels intuitively right, but it's not too on the nose.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well, in closing, I wonder if um, if there's any advice that that someone gave you early on or a- at any point during your your writing career that has stayed with you, that that you still remember and think about.
1: Well, I, I anybody who. Um, you know, was able to sustain a writing career probably had a lot of good teachers tell them a lot of things that were helpful and even so i think about like tom finkel who was my editor in miami and i remember him going over my stories and he would just say over and over again you know what work is this doing what work is this adjective doing and i would have to admit that it wasn't doing much work and then i'd have to get rid of it so that been really helpful thinking about which is really a question that the the uh, playwright brecht asked uh, when people asked him about revision, he would say, well, you ask, what work does it do, right? Um, but I think the central thing that I've learned from teachers is just that in writing, because it's so difficult and so choked with doubt, your job is really to outlast your doubt and to outlast the rejection and disappointment that's going to come your way. I, I tried to write a novel for 30 years. I wrote four and a half really bad novels. I spent a lot of years. Um, mired in those projects, stung by their failure, humiliated by their failure, crying to some therapist or some poor partner or another. Um, and, and, but I didn't give up. And I think that's your job in a certain way is to not give up. And I'll say one more piece of advice that I think is great, and it came from a songwriter from this book, Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life. I interviewed this guy, Bob Schneider, right? He's written so many beautiful songs. And I was sort of just saying to him, like, how do you do it? How do you write so many songs that are so amazing? How are you so prolific? And he said something that I've always remembered, and I sometimes say to especially writers who are struggling with writer's block. He said, well, I just set the bar as low as possible. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) And I
1: thought it was such a great thing to say. It's so comforting in this world of America where everybody's always trying to write the great American novel and putting all that pressure on themselves. Nope. Your job is just to get yourself to the keyboard and be there and hope the muse shows up. And in order to get there, sometimes you have to set the bar low. Hmm.
0: That's a good one. Steve, thank you so much. It's been, it's been a great pleasure talking with you.
1: It's, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much.
0: That was Steve Almond, author of the new novel, All the Secrets of the World. And again, a few words about Patreon visit patreon it will help us out and uh, give you perks to helping us out um, the music is by Travis Barrett if you like the intro outro the typewriter music go to Spotify and look for just my type there's an album worth of music there um, of this music different songs that my son Travis made and uh, I love it, I put it on uh, just play, replay, it circles around, it loops, and uh, hours go by listening to this and writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, this is Writers on Writing, we'll be here again next Monday. Thank you for listening.